Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to Livewire. How you doing? How is your week going? Hope you're having a good one. My name is Luke Burbank. I am your host. We got a great show for you this week. We have the hilarious Phoebe Robinson from Two Dope Queens. We've also got Thomas Page McBee. Uh, he was the first trans man to box in Madison Square Garden. Plus, Lainey Morris, who invented something that you may have heard bouncing around the internet, goat yoga, which is in fact a thing. I've even done it. And we have music from a live wire favorite, Sammy Brew. Uh, we're talking about paying your dues this week on the show. And um, interestingly enough, considering I have this job where I'm a radio host, I didn't really pay my dues that much in radio. I was, you know, hired as an entry-level person, but I was so bad at the entry-level stuff that they just kept giving me other things to do, which moved me closer and closer to the microphone, till eventually I was just doing this. Uh, I'll tell you what, though. The thing that I did pay my dues in was, uh, was my attempts in my 20s at becoming an actor. And that's what I was telling our announcer, Elena Passarello, about when we kicked off this show. So let's pick things up on stage at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland, Oregon. My agent called me once and said, okay, you booked this job. It's, uh, it's playing a part in a 3D movie. I was like, wow, that sounds big time. And he goes, well, let me clarify. It's actually a 3D short film. I was like, okay, that's still pretty cool. He goes, actually, it's a... It's an industrial film for an insurance company that's going to play <laughs> at a get-together of the insurance agents who sold the most insurance during a given year. Wow. So not even all the insurance agents. No, just, just the, the cream l- of the crop. The lucky ones. Nice. And it was me and, and, and another guy. We had these very puffy, piratey shirts on, <laughs> and we were there in this short film to fight the mascots of the other major insurance companies. It was a pirate-themed insurance? I don't know why we were dressed in these blousey <laughs> shirts, but we, like, fought a person who represented, like, Flo from Progressive. Oh, wow. And we fought a Geico gecko. <laughs> it was super weird. My agent said, the good news, though, in addition to booking this job, is that you're going to get to go to San Diego where they're going to show this film to all the insurance agents. Okay. And I was like, why would they want me there? And he was like, they just want a little kind of celebrity... <laughs> Buzz. And I was like, you think they're going to be excited to meet the guy who killed a pretend Geico? We get to San Diego and they're like, your job is going to be to just go out before this film shows and just hobnob with the people. And I was like, no one is going to want to meet us. Nobody cares. But they're like, it'll be fine. So the night before our big meet and greet, me and the other guy, we go out and we get wasted in San Diego. <laughs> wasted with an H. Like as drunk as maybe I've ever been in my life. I wake up the next morning, I am in bad shape. Oh no. And I, I look down and I have like a bunch of missed calls from somebody from the insurance company and they explain that the screen they were supposed to show the 3D movie on doesn't work. So now they're showing the 3D movie in a small conference room on a television. <laughs> And they need us to go down there because none of the insurance agents are going in the room where the 3D movie is playing. So we need to stand in the hallway oh, no. of like the Hyatt in San Diego and hand out 3D glasses <laughs> and ask the people to go in and watch the 3D movie that we're in. And we need to wear the shirts. <laughs> and I think like one person went in and watched the movie. Aww. But I had the thought, well, this is paying your dues. This is This is how this works. So that was at least some... I don't know, that made me feel a little less bad about it. Did you have any gigs coming up as an actor where you were like, this feels like I am very much paying my dues? Yeah, I mean, like, how much time do you have? Uh, do you remember when they used to have kind of, there was a channel that showed you what the channels were on cable? Yes. And then at the top of the frame, there was always some kind of local programming, right? Now that's all done by Mario Lopez. Oh, right. Formerly of Saved by the Bell. Oh, yeah. This, he's also on my hotel TV all the yes. time. Like he's trapped in there. I know. I think he lives in there. Aw. So I got a gig once that there, everyone was really sorry that I had to take this dues paying gig where uh, local sellers of things, local uh, mongers. <laughs> <laughs> this is where? Where in America? In Pittsburgh. Okay. What? What? Uh, if they didn't feel like they could do their own commercials, they could pay to come to a studio 
and someone with a sort of home shopping network expertise could interview them. And they, they cast two women, me and this woman who used to actually be on the home shopping network. She was a fitting model for Jackie Onassis at one point. This was a classy dame. And so she got to interview the jewelers and the car dealership people and the travel agents. And the then, premium, the y- premium clients. Yeah, I got uh, a petting zoo that was really <laughs> poorly run. So I got to hold like a fennec fox in my hand and it scratched my front up. So for the, all the other interviews that I did that day, I had just these bloody claw marks on the front of my outfit. I got a, a dude who really didn't know how to do like middle school science demonstrations and he was sort of blowing up Bunsen burners. It was the most fun I ever had. But you had. liked it. Oh, I loved it so much. It See, I admire that about you, Elena. I feel like you <laughs> just kind of like when you're thrown into a situation, you're just like, okay, here I am. Let me just enjoy this as much as I can. I do think, though, that if I had to sit with a poofy shirt on and hand out 3D glasses for a movie, I'd, I, w- I would feel not as great about that as I would have traded it. that for, a, what's it called, a fennel fox? I think it's a fennec fox, like fennec a little fox. desert fox, a little sleepy little fox. Somebody wrote him. on Twitter or somewhere that any zoo is a petting zoo if you're brave enough. <laughs> and I feel like that's a... It's kind of a good life lesson. I feel like that was the motto of this petting zoo that hired me to do those interviews. That's where where we're going with this whole thing, people. Hey, we've got a guest who knows something about paying your dues. He was the first trans person uh, that we know of ever to box at Madison Square Garden. He wrote about the experience in his fascinating book, Amateur, a true story about what makes a man a man. Let's bring him up now. Please welcome Thomas Page McBee to Livewire. Thomas, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I, this book is really great. Um, it it covers a lot of important topics and also covers a lot of boxing, which I'm maybe the last fan of that sport. <laughs> so it was right up my alley. I want to start, though, a little bit with your sort of personal story. When did you first get the sense that your gender did not match the physical body that you were born into? You know, it's an interesting question because I feel like it's often the one people lead with. And I it's hard for me to answer because I feel like... I'd put it back to you. Like, when did you first realize that your gender was uh, the one that you were assigned? You know, it's hard to kind of know, right? right? Like, I, I feel like I had a really lucky childhood in a lot of ways. I had a parent who was really supportive of me. And so as I got older, uh, it, it actually, for me, I had like a kind of liberated experience of gender for a really long time. And then as I got older and sort of came into a realization that physically I didn't feel totally great about my body, but I actually felt like my, my gender was pretty well developed, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And so I just sort of like, as an adult, I actually had to bring my body into alignment with my sense of self, but that was very well formed, which I think isn't everyone's experience. Well, the reason I asked that question, I guess, is because you write in the book that at least as far as your physical life as a man, that didn't start till much later for you than it starts for like somebody like me. Yeah. And you had a lot of learning to do, yeah. like after the age of 30, after yes. you had started to transition. Yeah. What was the stuff that that you at age 30 or 32, you were like, oh, wow, this is physically being a man. I didn't expect this. Well, so I was thinking about paying your dues when I was walking up here uh, in the two minutes before I had a chance to start talking. Um, but We like to keep you on your toes <laughs> here on LiveWire. <laughs> but I was just thinking, like, um, I feel like I have only ever paid dues, if that makes sense, like as a man. But at the same time, on the opposite side of that, as a man, I don't have to pay any dues. Like I had a gender identity before this where I was sort of androgynous and masculine. And in that reality, like it's not like you pay dues and then you get access to everything. You just never do because uh, you're not in the system of binary genders that people understand. But then when I turned 30 and I transitioned, it was like suddenly everything fell away and I just had all these privileges. I mean, it's so radically different to be in a legible gender identity and a male one and a white one at that. So I think I was really struck by that. And then simultaneously, like a lot of what physically was different for me actually involved things that were hard about being a man, if that makes sense. Like... Uh, Sociologists call it the man box, but there's like the ways that men are expected to behave that include things like lack of access to intimacy and physical touch and um, showing your emotions and those sorts of things. So those two things together were, for me, the biggest challenges of my transition. 
Yeah, in your book, it says that you had to start taking exclamation points out of emails. <laughs> it really gave you a sense of how, how global the revision has to be when you're uh, reevaluating the way that you're walking in the world. Yeah, although I think now I've added them back in. Yeah, yeah. I'll go four exclamation points. <laughs> yeah. I don't even care, but yeah. maybe that's, you know, cis privilege. I don't, I don't have to, like, look at that through the lens of what does this say about me. Well, I mean, it is, though. I mean, we're joking, but it is. When I first transitioned, I really tried to just pass and be the man that the world expected. And then I think as I was doing that, I was realizing more and more, no matter how happy I was at home in my apartment, in my body, whenever I left the house, I was like, this is a nightmare between the expectations of masculinity and also actually feeling like I was experiencing privileges that I, I didn't want to be experiencing without doing something about. Both of those things were really troubling to me. Like, what do you do when you're a man and you're around other men and they're saying something? Right. Uh, that's disparaging of women or, or LGBTQ people. Like, how, how do you fit into that now? Well, now I say something. And that's the thing. Like, the bystander effect is really real. And, like, in doing a lot of reporting and research on masculinity, that was one of the first takeaways, was, like, men need to say something to other men. And actually, every time I have, it's been a positive effect. And it, that's what changes masculinity is enlarging it and like changing people's perceptions of what being a man means and what being a man means doesn't mean dominating people it doesn't mean putting down people who because of things related to sexism and homophobia and transphobia and if we don't want being a man to be associated with that we have to fight people who say that that's what being a man means you know we're talking to Thomas Page McBee. Uh, his book is Amateur, a true story about what makes a man a man this is Livewire Radio from PRI back in a moment Livewire is supported in part by Fully have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy. Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We're talking to Thomas Page McBee. His new book is Amateur, a true story about what makes a man a man. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, you write in the book that after... Um, I think you say it was around 2015 or something. For some reason, dudes kept trying to start fights with you, just like on the street, <laughs> yeah. like in normal life. What was going on with that? So to be totally fair, like my, my mom had passed away uh, a few months before that and sort of related to what I said earlier, I was feeling a lot of feelings, but I felt like I could only express anger. So I think I was walking around with like just a bad vibe, honestly. So, so that was on me. But on the other hand, why were men trying to fight me in the street? I don't know. It was right before the election. I don't know if there was just a bad vibe happening in general. But I, I basically went through uh, that summer of 2015, three months in a row, um, guys trying to fight me. And the last time I was like, I almost got into a street fight with this guy. And that's when, for me, that was the crossroads where I was like, I've got to face whatever it is about masculinity that is causing this, because what makes this guy so different than me? Nothing really, you know? I don't want to become him. And so that was why I started, started this journey of asking all these questions about masculinity and trying to take them really with an open heart. Like, why do men fight? Uh, what is a real man? Are men naturally aggressive? Is that actually a thing? And I thought, these are all my things I'm afraid of or don't understand, and I'm just gonna start asking them. And uh, I signed up for this boxing match, and that's how I got involved with fighting and ended up fighting in Madison Square Garden. Like. I knew a guy who was on a board of a charity of yeah. boxing, you know, stuff. So that's how I ended up. You had that. a bit of an in. Yes. But still, I mean, there was, you had now sort of created this dynamic for yourself where you were going to be at some point in a boxing <laughs> ring, like yes, boxing somebody. Yeah. What was it like when you actually showed up at the gym to like learn how to box? Terrifying. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was scary, but everything about the experience was different than what I expected, actually. Like, uh, I think the biggest takeaway when, when people ask me about 
the training was like how much intimacy I found with the men at the gym, which was a real shock. Like that's not at all what I would have expected to be saying, but uh, because of the cover of violence, actually, which is how sociologists have explained this to me when I reported on it later, there's a way that men can be intimate in spaces like that that they can't be anywhere else. So I can't I can't remember another time where I was sort of um, treated with more support or affection um, or just generally like where I could be as vulnerable as I was when I was training to fight, which was really shocking. Like the the very reductive explanation would be that because these men are together and they're doing this kind of what we think of as a machismo thing, it creates space for them to then be more intimate than they might feel comfortable in other contexts? Well, because their masculinity isn't fragile. There's no one questioning like if their masculinity is real or intact. And therefore, because of that, they don't need to prove it. Um, which is like obvious, but also like when you think about it, so troubling. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, I think what I found hopeful about it was that when men don't feel the need to prove their masculinity, all of those things that are just part of being a human are there, you know, and that's what I was experiencing as a, as a person training to fight. Boxing is such a vulnerable sport, you know, it's just you. Uh, and anything that you're bad at is just so present. And it, I don't just mean like a move. I mean, like if you struggle being aggressive, which is what I struggled with, everyone in the gym can see it, you know? And so they don't then make you feel worse or police you. They do the opposite, which is normally not what happens with masculinity. They in fact encourage you to learn to come forward or turn that into a strength. Um, so I experienced a sort of like a completely different understanding of masculinity because there was no fear about having to prove that you were a man. But you also did not uh, really make it public that you were trans. Right. Um, and then you, you wrote that you sort of regretted that decision a little bit later. Like, why didn't you make that known to, to folks? Yeah. Well, I mean, for my safety first, uh, because I just didn't know what to expect. But also, I really didn't want to have my trans status mediate the experience at all. I didn't want to look back and think like, oh, I wonder if people are treating me differently because I'm trans. I wanted to really understand, you know, just me, myself, in my body, the way I'm being perceived. How is my experience as just a man going through this ex this training? Like, what exactly does it, does it say about being a man? And I was worried that if people knew I was trans that they might treat me differently in some way. Uh, we're talking to Thomas Page McBee. His book is Amateur, a True Story About What Makes a Man a Man. Uh, I love how honest you are in the book about how bad you were at boxing. Yeah. As the actual event was approaching and, and you were going through different sparring partners and you were finding out how really hard boxing is, did you toy with the idea of quitting? Uh, or were you worried about, about sort of embarrassing yourself when you got into Madison Square Garden? I felt like I didn't even think about quitting because I really had to do this. Like, I didn't know how to resolve these issues I was having. It almost felt like my, my transition in the first place where I was like, first step was I knew I was a man and I needed to become one. The second one was like, how do I be the man I wanna be in the world? And I really didn't know how to be that person. And because I wasn't a boy, I had no boyhood, and because I have frontal lobes, uh, when I was going through this experience of uh, dealing with masculinity, I was like, I can't reconcile what's expected of me and you know who I believe I am. Like, I just can't do this. So I felt like for my integrity, I had to do this boxing match. And it mattered so much less to me if I won or lost. It's funny, when I hear you talk about this, you're talking about these personal motivations that are f making you write, right? Yeah. Figuring out the book with these questions that are deeply personal, but you're also using verbs like reported. It just makes me wonder with your journalist training and the way that you solve problems and ask questions as an external reporter, how did you navigate the transition to reporting about other people to really reporting about yourself, about these personal things? Yeah, so I did the entire experience. I really tried to not talk to other people and I just lived the experience of the fight uh, and just took a million notes and was really present in that. And then when I reported out the whole book, I like went back and talked to historians and sociologists and psychologists with those big questions in mind. Like so. The first experience is sort of the arc of the book, the fight itself, but then actually everything that fills out the book comes from like the more universal, you know, and actually I'm lucky because I felt like I was hoping that that would be true, yeah. that all these hypotheses I had about myself were relevant to everyone. Like oh. the things I was concerned about and worried about are really, really universal aspects of being a man. I don't want to give away the end of the book, but I'll, uh, I mean, we'll just say you, you made it to the fight. Yeah. You, you, you did the fight in Madison Square Garden. What did you like learn that you can apply to your real life and that other people might be able to apply to their real lives from this experience of like learning how to box? One of the things you write in the book, which I'd never thought of is uh, fighting is mostly about what you do when you're overpowered. Mm -hmm. That's like uh, a pretty profound thought, I think, for life along with boxing. 
Yeah, there's two things I've sort of come up with that, that answers that question. One is like related to the book itself and the process of, of doing that, which is that I think asking questions with a beginner's mind is never a bad idea. But two is like, I actually think learning to fight itself was actually really important. And I wasn't expecting to feel that way. And I think especially for people who are in a marginalized body in one way or the other, you know, when you're socialized to not fight, the fight is taken out of you. I think learning to come forward and to be aggressive is actually really important, not because I think people should go in, be going around being violent to other people, but I think knowing that you have it in you to, to do that is actually a really powerful thing. And so I'm really glad that I know I can fight, even if it's just for something I believe in. Thomas Page McBee, the book is Amateur, a true story about what makes a man a man. Thomas, thanks for being on Livewire. Thank you. All right, Thomas, uh, we here on Livewire, we like to really try to get to know our guests in a very, very personal way. Your book is, is a really personal account of your experience uh, learning how to box. And we think, though, there's maybe even another level that we can go to with you. And so what we have here in front of you is an actual physical jar. This has in it the five essential questions of our time. Wow. We call this the jar of truth. Here's how this is going to work. Thomas, you pick a question out of the jar of truth. Elena Passarello is going to read it, and then we want to get your honest answer to one of these five essential questions of our age. Here we go. Elena, please Mr. read. Mr. McBee. Yes. If you were a font, what font no. would you be? <laughs> I actually know, though. Ariel Narrow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I did not expect you to have an answer ready to go for that. <laughs> How many boxers in America would have an Ariel Narrow font answer ready to go? I think you're on a short list. Why Ariel Narrow? Well, because I've had to look at a lot of fonts to do my website, and I've thought a lot about like what feels the most aesthetically like me, and I really settle on Ariel Narrow. So bizarrely, I have an answer to that. What, it, what is it about Ariel Narrow? Is know, it it's like narrowness? clean, and it's narrow, and it just, yeah, really narrow is what sells it for me. Yeah. <laughs> really attached. I had a Times New Roman phase back in the 90s. Which yeah. I, I kind of regret. I don't know. That's such a ubiquitous font. What about you? Uh, I, I think I, I stay with Times New Roman because it's so bland. I can tell when I'm being a bad writer. Really? Yeah, because if you put it in Garamond, all That's your true. stuff looks like the most brilliant stuff ever. There's Welcome like to Font Talk. <laughs> You know, the crazy thing is we're probably right now airing on a public radio station somewhere in America that has a show called Font Talk probably. Yeah. that led into us. And this is essentially redundant. That's your next gig. Yeah. You're going to headline I mean, Font Talk. Definitely, because I knew right away. I know that I if I was given a limited time to live, I would just go all wingdings. No. <laughs> I think writers, like one of the things that you do when you're trying to uh, edit is you tr you put it in like Comic Sans or some god awful font. To make it big. Yeah, really big and really awful looking so that you don't fall in love with the way that it looks. That's like a trick when you're editing. I've never tried it. I just uh, stay neutral. But I was thinking Comic Sans would be a bold choice. I, I wish that I felt that way, actually. Right. Yeah, that's really going to That's the, the ultimate grain. power move. Yeah, it really is. If you are confident yeah. enough to be like, yeah, Comic Sans. Yeah. What up? Well, Thomas, <laughs> you were literally the perfect guest to talk about paying your dues and to answer font-related questions. So thank you so much <laughs> for being you. on Livewire. Thomas Page McBee, everybody. Hey, it's Luke. Don't go anywhere, because coming up, we've got comedian Phoebe Robinson on what it's like being famous, but also still being pretty broke, and what she did about it. While it looks cool that I have like this podcast or whatever, it's like the truth of the matter is I was like financially struggling. So I just wanted to be open and honest and talking about debt, because I feel like so many of us struggle with it, and we just feel like maybe shame, or just like we're not allowed to express that sort of stress we're walking around with every single day. That's still ahead on Livewire from PRI. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear, Alaska Airlines suggests one more taste of summer. Alaska Airlines now offers low fares on nonstops from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. 
Plus, included in that low fare is assigned seating, over 400 free movies and TV shows, and power outlets at your seat in case your battery is low and the movie isn't over. Aloha, Alaska Airlines. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland. And, of course, Portland and let's just say the whole state of Oregon uh, is full of interesting people. Interesting people doing weird, interesting things. Each week we like to meet one of these folks. So let's bring one out right now. Please welcome Lainey Morse to Livewire. Okay, you and I met before on a TV story that I was doing, but for the folks listening in the radio audience who aren't familiar with the fascinating aspect of your work, what are you credited with inventing? Goat yoga. So how did the idea for goat yoga come to you? Uh, You know, I had auctioned off a kid's birthday party at my farm, and one of the people that came to the birthday party was a yoga instructor. And we're standing out in the field, and, you know, the goats are all around us, and and she's like, oh, you should really let me have a yoga class out here. It's just beautiful. And I was like, okay, well, the goats are going to be all over the humans, so (laughs) sure, you know. And so I'm a photographer, and so we had her out, and, you know, the goats jumped on top of her, and... We did some video and some promo shots and uh, put it on Facebook, and it just exploded. Why do you think people have become so obsessed with this idea of goat yoga? Like, it is an international thing now. It is. It's in Switzerland, Amsterdam, Australia. It's everywhere. And, you know, I think everyone needs a happy distraction from the negative news, politics. You know, when I started to launch this, it was... um, the presidential debates, and I would post videos of my goats just sitting there chewing their cud. (laughs) And for some reason, it's very, like, relaxing, and I would say, vote goat. And (laughs) I think the journalists and people just wanted a happy distraction, and and that's really what it was about. I also have noticed that, uh, in particular, goats seem to really fascinate people. What is it about a goat? Like, why? I mean, there's lots of cute farm animals. What is it about goats that that people are so, like, uh, into? Well, you know, um, a lot of people don't have any interaction with goats. And so when they first come to the classes or they come to the farm, they realize that goats possess all these characters that humans have a hard time obtaining. So that's, you know, being in the present moment, being joyful, being funny. And so when you're around them, I think you take on that energy and they're just calm. And so that's really what it is about. And so they don't need a connection to a human. They just bond to you naturally. When you came in my barn, what did they do? They, they surrounded me with right. love and they yep. knew almost nothing about the presidential race, which was right. a huge relief. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so just for people that are wondering about the kind of practical implications of this, the goats crawl on people while they're doing yoga poses. Like when you hear goat yoga, one doesn't exactly know what that means. Like how right. does it actually work? Well, you know, it's, it's humans doing yoga and there's adorable goats around. So a lot of times they just, they crawl on your mat and snuggle up next to you or they nuzzle you or they hop on your back and just want to take a nap or (laughs) it's just their natural inclination to jump up on top of people because they're prey animals. So they want to be on top of things. And, (laughs) you know, my particular type of goat yoga, because now there's lots of competitors. There's probably 500 out there. Yeah, I'm not kidding. It's, you know, a lot of them dress their goats up in costumes and it it just, it makes it look like a circus to me. And it, it, it's frustrating to me because I'm trying to convince people this isn't something that's silly. This is really goat therapy. And that's what got me through some hard times. And yeah, because you would go before any of this goat yoga stuff started, you were kind of dealing with some stuff and you would just go basically sit in your barn at night and just chill with your goats. Right. Yep. For kind of therapeutic reasons. And I still do, Luke. Every single day, 4.30, I go out and I just walk with the goats out in the field and spend time with them because that's what disconnects me from stress and, you know, whatever I'm going through. And, you know, I, I've got eight locations now all over the U.S. And <laughs> it's important that I go out and disconnect. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to ask you this question. I know you get it's always in every interview you do probably, but it people want to know about this. The goats... 
when they go to the bathroom because <laughs> they are not like housebroken. No. What's the situation with that? And is that gross for the people doing the goat yoga? Well, I guess if they think it's gross, they probably shouldn't come to goat yoga. But, uh, you know, it's like rabbit pellets. It doesn't stink. And so we, the instructor just says, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to have that happen to you. <laughs> right. Do, do you guys call it blessings? Uh, I know some places. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's luck. It's luck if you have that happen. <laughs> That's marketing right there. <laughs> All right, Lainey Morris, everybody, inventor of Goat Yoga, our fascinating friend. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. I just want to tell you about the Live Wire podcast. It's pretty much just like the Livewire radio show that you're listening to, but it's also something you can take with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's right. It's absolutely free, and it's there for your convenience. If you want to find out about the Livewire podcast, go to livewireradio.org or go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, or any of the other places you get your podcasts. This is Livewire Radio from PRI talking about paying your dues, and our next guest knows all about paying her dues. She's the co-creator of the podcast-turned-HBO series Two Dope Queens. She's in the Netflix movie Ibiza, and she's out with her second book, Everything is Trash, But It's Okay. Please welcome Phoebe Robinson back to Livewire. Phoebe, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's been two years. I know. Yeah. And in, in the interim, you starred in a movie, you wrote yeah. another book, and I'm exactly where you left me. No, no. Literally nothing has changed <laughs> about my life. We're all growing in different, you know, speeds. Yeah. <laughs> that is very diplomatic. I appreciate it. Uh, this uh, book of yours, which which is a really fun read, I was thank you. I was I was cracking up reading the book. It's just packed full of jokes and insights and stories from your life. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> the the book came about because it was after the 2016 election. I was feeling sort of like, oh, everyone's so angry and divisive, and we're all sort of like yelling at each other, not really communicating. But then I was like really inspired by seeing how like people were mobilizing. So I was like, oh, everything's kind of trash, but it's okay. Like people are like sort of trying to find the positivity in things. And when I was starting the book, you know, if you're going to say, like, everything's trash, I feel like you have to own up to, like, your own garbage first. You, 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 you say in the book that you are, you know, basically a trash person, but you're okay with that. What makes someone yeah. a trash person? Well, I think my trash is, like, kind of, like, charming. Like, I watch reality TV or, you know, if I go to, like, a massage parlor, like, I'm a gassy person, so I'll just, like, sort of, like eek out farts like throughout uh yeah I, I i used to do this a lot like i would go to the movie theater and i would go get chipotle and i would just sneak food into the movie theater and make like sure everyone like was on guard for me so i like wouldn't get caught so just sort of things like that where you're like oh phoebes get your life together like strangers like yeah you bring the chipotle and you'd be like hey okay everybody's yeah gonna... this is a community now we're all trying to make sure i don't get busted bringing in food from the outside yeah uh your mom Yes. Seems to not care a whit. Mm -hmm. Any famous people you meet, yeah. be it John Hamm, Tom Hanks, she only wants to know: Is it Viola Davis? Is it maybe Bruce Willis? <laughs> yeah, like the Rock. She's yeah. not giving you the feedback that a lot of parents no. would give when their child is like interacting with some of these major celebrities. Yeah. Why? And also, has that driven you in your life to to not have <laughs> the kind of obvious parental feedback on some of these things? Um, yeah, I think just like parents get locked in on like five celebrities that they like and they will never like deviate from that. So it is Violet Davis is number one, The Rock, Bruce Willis. They love the Obamas, <laughs> Oprah. And like that is like mostly it. <laughs> like I think they'd be like if they saw Will Smith, they'd be my mom'd be like, Okay, I guess. But like even then, <laughs> I think she's kind of like, No, where is Viola here? Like where <laughs> Um, do your parents, are they the kind of parents that, uh, celebrity stuff aside, were always heaping praise on you and always like really into whatever you were doing? Um, um, I don't know if it was like heaping. It was like a decent amount. They're very supportive of my brother and I, but they're not... 
like I remember they didn't like financially support me through comedy. So when I was just had those really like my salad years, as you would call it, like I was just really sort of like struggling. And I when think all you could afford was salad. Yeah, and I not- never understood that expression because salad is so expensive. But I wasn't going to like sweet greens. Like I was truly right. just getting like a dole bag. Like, like of iceberg. Yes, iceberg lettuce from the grocery yeah. store that was two dollars, gotcha. and then that was like my salad <laughs> that I was having. So even when you were going through your years of trying to make mm-hmm. it in comedy, and I know you were working a day job and then doing comedy at night, your parents were supportive, but they were not, like, funding the operation. Yeah, and I think I also, you know, I think anyone who's a parent your kid is, like, in New York trying to pursue a career where there's no safety net you're going to worry. So I kind of wouldn't tell them like how much debt I was in. I was just like, everything's cool. I'm like, okay. But I was like so poor and it was really rough. It was so rough for a long time. But then Mm -hmm. as you detail in the book, Mm -hmm. you set yourself on this plan to get out of debt. Yeah. This is very impressive. Um, What was the secret? And don't say, become a television and film star who has <laughs> two hit books and a hit podcast. Cause that's not um, relatable to people. No, not. I think really what I did, it was like extreme budgeting where I just was like, I stopped eating out. Like I was, this is like pretty early on my stand up career. So if I had to like go out of town, like on the East coast, I would go to like Peter Pan or bolt bus. And I would wait till there was like a $1 bus ticket. And that's how I would be able to do my gigs out of town. I would only stay at friends apartments because I couldn't like stay at a hotel. So it was a lot of just like, you're not going to have a life. And I didn't have a life for like years, but I got out of it. Wow. That's really impressive that you committed to that and that you stuck with it. It must've been hard. It was hard, but it was sort of, I was kind of like, is this what every comedian goes through? And I I think the answer is yes. Like just asking all my friends is like, yeah, we were all like, I have friends who were like nannying for a really long time. And they were like, uh, you know, I wasn't getting paid that well being a nanny. Like just lots of friends at comedy are just kind of grinding it out and doing whatever it takes to sort of make it to the next level. Don't you feel though, like debt is a really, it's a a real problem for most Mm -hmm. Americans, but in particular, I think younger Americans Mm -hmm. because student loans and because of credit cards and because of the real estate market, I feel like young people are swimming in debt and it's like going to have a generational effect. Absolutely. I mean, I was $45,000 in debt from uh, going to Pratt Institute. And um, that's a lot of salad. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of salad. And it, it was just kind of like the thing no one tells you when you graduate college that like the jobs necessarily aren't going to be there. But so in the book, the reason why I wrote about my my journey through my whole debt process, which lasts several years, is because, like you said, like, oh, you have the podcast and blah, blah, blah. And I think like Instagram is sort of like the highlight reel of like your life. But it was like, while it looks cool that I have like this podcast or whatever, it's like the truth of the matter is I was like financially struggling. So I just wanted to be open and honest and talking about debt because I feel like so many of us struggle with it and we just feel like maybe shame or just like we're not allowed to express that sort of stress we're walking around with every single day. Uh, Phoebe, I was surprised to read in your book that you had no swag in your 20s. You are are like, you surprised? Yes, because you seem cool. very confident. You are a part of all these hit projects. Yeah. Uh, you have an entourage. You had a minimum of four people with, your, okay. with you when you showed up here. First of all, it's not an entourage. It's just to keep this What's the minimum going? number of people where it becomes an entourage? I think it's like five but I, I feel like I normally just walk around by myself. Okay. Yeah. I'm not trying to entourage shame yeah. you, but <laughs> I do think that you have an energy about you that mm. seems like you're comfortable in your own skin and you're a funny person, you're a smart person. These are all things that seem like they would accrete to a certain swagginess, which you say you didn't have in your 20s. Yeah, I definitely do. I don't know. I, like, I was never the cool one in high school. I don't know. Like I think I just embrace who I am and that like, I love you too. And I talk about Oprah all the time. I love nineties TV. Like I, but I don't think I'm cool at all. And I'm not saying this so you can be like, no, you are cool. Like, I just don't think I have swag. I think I just sort of just like, I'm kind of a geek and I think that's okay. Oh yeah. Like I think everyone is. Well, are you surprised then that this has all worked out for you? Because like stand up comedy is a surprising thing to go into. If you don't feel like you're, cool or or have a, some kind of special energy about you like you've chosen a career path that most people that get into that are like i'm exceptional and everyone needs to look have at me have you met stand up most of them are like lamos and like 
They're so self-loathing. And imagine yeah. this. I'm a failed stand-up comic. <laughs> so do the math on that. Walk that one back. Um, yeah, I think like I'm I think I'm an extroverted introvert. Um, and so comedy is my outlet where I can like sort of like have the attention. But like in my regular life, like I think I'm just really sort of like more reserved than my public persona kind of lets off. But that's good for my career so I can make money. Yeah. <laughs> your book is Everything's Trash, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some non-trash moments of your life that yes. are also in the book. For instance, you know, just like swimming with Julia Roberts off of her <laughs> yacht in um, Serbia. Uh, Croatia, yeah. Croatia. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, how did that happen? That was pretty wild. So, uh, Ibiza, we shot it in Serbia and in Krokro. That's why I call Croatia. And Does Croatia I, know you're calling it Krokro? No, has no idea. Yeah. And it's like, can you please stop once you hear this interview? Um, but um, yeah, so her husband, Danny Mulder, was the director of photography for the movie. So Julia and the kids would come out. And Vanessa Bayer, who also stars in the movie, like her and I are like, we were so thirsty for Julia's like approval. Like we would constantly be like, can we hang out? Every single day, like, can we do brunch? Like, whatever, like, we'll hang out. And they always said yes, and we're very sh- surprised by it. Um, so, anyway, one weekend, Danny was like, Oh, yeah, they're coming to town. Like, we should all hang out. And we we're like, Yeah, let's do it. And he was like, Let's get a yacht. And I was kind of like, Just you get it because I can't afford it. Uh, <laughs> I'm still in year five of the seven year plan <laughs> yeah, to pay right? my debt off. <laughs> this is no we, this is a you get the yacht. Um, <laughs> But then I'm getting the yacht. It was super fun. And they all, it was just, I was the only person of color on this boat. Um, and so naturally they all knew how to swim. And I was like, oh, I don't. I'm like the stereotype. I just never got into swimming. And um, they were like, you could do it. You could do it. And I was like, I don't know. I'm really scared. And they're like, the water is so buoyant in Croatia. Like, just go for it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to trust you guys. But also, like, white people in boats, like, not a great, like, history. Um, but <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to. But we're going to turn this around. Um, so uh, I got in the water, and Julia was like holding me and I was just like Julia Roberts was holding America's me. sweetheart yes. is, hold, is cradling you yes. in the water yes and I was just practicing my kicks and being like terrified and she was like so sweet and tender and it was like one of like the best memories of my life well, I'm glad to hear that even though everything is trash, there are things that are, in fact, not trash mm-hmm. in your life. Phoebe Robinson, everybody. The book is Everything's Trash, but that's okay. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. We will be back in just a moment. Hey, we want to say a special thanks this episode to Laura Cadiz of Tigard, Oregon, and Margaret Bates of Vancouver, Washington. Laura and Margaret are part of the Livewire member community, and what they've been doing is generously supporting our show with a donation each month. We are thankful for that because, if I'm being totally honest with you, we would not be able to do Livewire without people like Laura and Margaret. So thank you so much to them. Thanks for making Livewire possible. Welcome back to Livewire Radio. We've got Phoebe Robinson here from Two Dope Queens. Uh, her new book is Everything's Trash, But It's Okay. Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. All right, Phoebe, uh, your book points out that, that everything these days is metaphorically trash. Mm-hmm. But we have some actual questions about trash and garbage uh, uh, which is a big deal here in Portland. You got to throw the right thing in the right receptacle. Oh, cool. This is this is serious business. We wanted to get your opinion on this because you know a lot about what is and isn't trash. Okay. Uh, so we have a little quiz for you. This is a part of the show we call Let's Get Quizzical. Let's get quizzical, quizzical. I want to get quizzical. Let's see if you know your stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? So good, you guys. Okay, uh, let's start off with a quick multiple choice question here in Portland. Which of the following is not actually considered trash? Please, no help from the audience here at the Alberta Street Pub. Oh, man, this is hard because in New York, everything is just thrown on the street. So we have no no idea. Okay, Portland's Uh, much better. Okay. Okay. 
Uh, the plastic container that your arugula came in, is that trash? Uh, bacon, grease, and a sealed container, is that trash? Heavily used diapers, is that trash? Or envelopes, is that trash? One of those things I just read you is technically not trash here in Portland. Probably the bacon, right? Close. It's actually the envelopes. So it wasn't close. No, you're actually... <laughs> Literally, the <laughs> other than heavily dirty diapers, maybe yeah. the furthest you can get. Envelopes okay. are not trash. They are, in fact, recyclable. Oh, They're see, not trash here in Portland. That makes so much sense now. I'm just saying if you get any fan mail uh, while you're in Portland, Phoebes, okay. the, uh, the envelope goes in the recycling, yeah. not in the trash. How about this? Okay. Trash people. Let's talk about a garbage person. A garbage, not the people who pick up refuse, but, you know, a garbage person. Oh, okay, got They it. are typically defined as somebody who's terrible in a sort of everyday way. Mm-hmm. Are any of the following behaviors enough to classify someone as a garbage person? Okay. Coming to work on day three of a nasty cold and touching everything, is that garbage person behavior? Yeah, stay the hell at home. <laughs> uh, how about this one? Responding to a text... Uh, over a day later saying, sorry, just seeing this now. I do that all the time. <laughs> that is such a, yeah, I'm really I bad about that. I gotta that, retire yeah. that move. I mean, everyone, in my, everyone in my life knows yeah. my email isn't being hella crazy. <laughs> it couldn't be that hella crazy all year long. Uh, what about, is this a garbage person behavior? Frantically pushing the shut door button when you see someone rushing trying to get to the elevator. Yeah, that's that's bad karma. You should not do that. That's the worst one. Yeah, that's really weird. You think weird. of all of those? Yeah. yeah. That's like forcibly ask, like trying to shut someone out. Yeah. Uh, okay, which of these things that are currently acceptable in society are trash and which are tolerable? Okay. All of our mail is now just catalogs. Like, we just don't get any mail that's not catalogs. I, that is trash. Like, yeah. we're wasting so many trees. Let's stop. Okay. Uh, canceling plans under an hour before you get there via text. Trash or tolerable? I mean, I'll do that. I will do that. So I tolerate, but I know that's like rude, but I'm also like sometimes just don't want to put on pants. So, right. Yeah. How about self service checkouts? Trash or tolerable? Oh, I love that. Tolerable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, especially if I'm like on my period, I'm just buying like, you know, pads and ice cream and like my doll. I don't want to like right. just have to like put that in front of someone else right. and be like, now you're a part of this story. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> that's take my it. me time. So I'll just. Uh, <laughs> All right. Phoebe Robinson says tolerable. <laughs> Phoebe Robinson, everybody. Check out her book and her podcast and her HBO show and her movie. Thanks, Phoebe. Our musical guest this hour started paying his dues when he was just 11 years old, busking at the Sundance Film Festival. He's open for artists like Justin Towns Earl, and now at the ripe old age of 17. He's released his first full album titled I Am Nice. Last time we saw him, he was playing our show in Salt Lake City. Please welcome back to Livewire, Sammy Brew. Sammy, welcome back to Livewire, man. Thank you for having me, dude. I feel so good. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do actually. I'm uh, me and KJ are sleeping in a van now. Okay. So we're working our way up in the world. Yeah. It's going pretty good so far. So. Were you sleeping on like a, a, a motorcycle earlier? Like, how's the van an improvement? <laughs> uh, it's actually my first car. I got my license not too long ago. Congratulations. So, I needed something to keep this train moving. You were really adventuring. Is this, okay, you got started very young and you've gotten some good attention as, as a young musician. Is this, is your career progressing the way that you kind of imagined it would? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd say. I'm here at Livewire right now. This yeah. Great. <laughs> I mean, this, this is, is the top of the mountain, buddy. Right? <laughs> what song are you going to play for us, Sammy? Uh, I'm going to play a song that uh, is on an EP that I just put out not too long ago. Uh, this song is called Our Garden. All right, this is Sammy Brew with KJ Ward right here on Livewire Radio.
Sammy Brew and KJ Ward right here on Livewire Radio. All right, that's our show. A big thanks this week to our guests, Phoebe Robinson, Thomas Page McBee, Lainey Morse, and Sammy Brew. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Foley, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our production director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring. And Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding is provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we would like to thank member Hallie Sadel of Portland, Oregon for her support. Hi, Hallie. Uh, For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or get our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International.